When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Before today's episode, I wanted to read a quote that Bruce McLean, our guest for today, read at the beginning of the camp that I went to that we discussed in this episode. It's from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet, and I thought it was beautiful and really set the tone well for what we were trying to do and what we're going to talk about today. So this is from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. Then an old man, a keeper of an inn, said, Speak to us of eating and drinking. And he said, Would that you could live on the fragrance of the earth and like an air plant be sustained by the light. But since you must kill to eat and rob the newly born of its mother's milk to quench your thirst, let it then be an act of worship. And let your board stand an altar on which the pure and the innocent of forest and plain are sacrificed for that which is purer and still more innocent in man. When you kill a beast, say to him in your heart, by the same power that slays you, I too am slain, and I too shall be consumed. For the law that delivered you into my hand shall deliver me into a mightier hand. Your blood and my blood is not but the sap that feeds the tree of heaven. And when you crush an apple with your teeth, say to it in your heart, your seeds shall live in my body, and the buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart, and your fragrance shall be my breath, and together we shall rejoice through all the seasons. And in the autumn, when you gather the grapes of your vineyards for the winepress, say in your heart, I too am a vineyard, and my fruit shall be gathered for the winepress, and like new wine, I shall be kept in eternal vessels. And in winter, when you draw the wine, let there be in your heart a song for each cup, and let there be in the song a remembrance for the autumn days and for the vineyard and for the wine press. I hope you enjoy the show. Here it is. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, and I'm also the director of creative and marketing here. Today I have with me Bruce McLenn, founder and lead instructor of Human Nature Hunting. I recently drove out to Eastern Washington to attend their holistic animal processing workshop. We talked a lot about conservation and climate change and how hunting may fit into that. I know this is a little bit of an unusual show. Bruce, I think it took a fair amount of sniffing me out to make sure this was legit. Actually, I don't know. I think maybe it was just an unusual offer that came your way, but I appreciate your interest in doing this. Oh, thanks, Ross. I appreciate it too. And it's not that unusual. You know, there's there's so much of this that's connected. And it's not the maybe the most usual topic that you're used to, but I think it's going to be interesting to dig into it. I think so too. Why do you think there is such a gap here? People who care about climate change and people who hunt, I think often have more overlap than maybe they think that they do. I thought the students who came, so I was there observing, I was not actually a student, but the students who came struck me as very thoughtful. They were there for reverential and honorable reasons. I didn't pick up a lot of rah-rah, kill them all, 
who cares about the animals. It seemed to be a much more significant kind of event. How do you frame hunting? Why did it feel reverent to attend uh, a workshop like this? Well, when I hear what you're saying, uh, I think hunting gets a bad rap a lot because you know, there are people out there that call themselves hunters and are doing things like you described and they kind of get the headlines and the news. And But I think and I hope that's a pretty small sector of the hunting population and Myself and a lot of folks I know that hunt do it for reasons primarily to reconnect to our environment and nature and our food systems and the cycles of life and death and just to be closer to the planet in a lot of ways. And um, and that's how we frame our program. It's not, I mean, it is a program on hunting, but fundamentally and foremost it's how do we help people reconnect or strengthen their connection to nature through hunting and hunting i think is such a unique opportunity that we have in this day and age still to uh to really dig into what it means to be part of this ecosystem to be part of the earth system as a a participant in the life and death drama that has been playing out for you know millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years at least and and so it's in a way it's tapping back into that ancient experience and wisdom and knowledge and <clears throat> i think that's the real focus here um, and we just happen to find ourselves in a time of you know history that as we're going through a lot of changes and in some ways we, we've lost connection, lost touch as a general population with hunting and what that meant for our survival and our connection to the land. And uh, so it's, it's just a way of looking, looking at that, you know, component and how do we get back to that, uh, that really that deep connection to the land. And then in the end, I think, you know, a lot of what conservation stems from is how well connected we are to the thing we're trying to conserve or preserve or protect. And I think with the right approach and the right mindset, hunting uh, has a profound way of connecting people to the environment and, you know, wildlife and, uh, food that we eat and it just kind of cements that connection to the bigger picture. I think most people who care about climate change, I think many of them probably are living in cities. They, I imagine they have some forms of outdoor recreation that they're passionate about, likely something like hiking. Um, but and maybe they garden, maybe they grow vegetables or fruit, and that's a way that they're involved in the life cycle. But I think for for many people, um, flesh of any kind is something that is bought in the store. And that kind of abstraction where it's a effectively as a piece of a body has been disembodied. It has been removed from the context from uh, being a living being. And I think it makes it much easier to take for granted or to 
forget because the fruit is offering itself to you voluntarily right it wants you to spread its seeds vegetables not really for the most part and meat is definitely not like that um but when you just buy it in the store i think it's easy to take it for granted and one of the things i really respect about hunting and hunters and i i did several hunting trips as a as a kid is this internalization of the cost of eating meat i think for me every time i've gone hunting it's always been a really emotional and somber experience. And I think it's good that meat should feel like that. You are taking a life and being connected to it in that way, I think makes you appreciate it and re-understand the cycles of life and death that all life depends upon of eating other things that in many cases do not wish to be eaten. I think that's humbling and there's almost a cosmic significance to it. I don't want to be grandiose about it, but do you connect with what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think a lot of folks that come through the program do too. It's one of the first things. I mean, the program you attended was a more of an advanced course where we focused on working with animals. Um, our typical course is a four-day course, and it covers the whole spectrum of hunting. But one of the the earliest, uh, well, one of the things we get into fairly quickly is dealing with an animal, dispatching an animal, uh, field dressing it, skinning it, butchering it, breaking it down into bite-sized pieces. And at first, people are not sure what they signed up for, and they're not sure if they really want to experience all of it or witness or observe it. But then they, you know, the more they think about it, it's like, yeah, this is this is not going to be easy, but it's what I signed up for, and I feel like it's important and by the time we work through the whole process and are you know sampling the <clears throat> tenderloins uh as an appetizer for the before the next meal they they seem to have a much different um perspective on the whole thing and saying you know this it's just so crazy how i mean first how far removed we are from this and then second like this thing was a you know it was an animal a matter of hours ago and now it looks like food that you buy in the store and they start to put these pieces together like this is this is what we're buying but it's you know it's all wrapped up and some people call it uh refer, has have referred to it as hiring a hitman to kill their you know to kill and wrap their meat yeah. and um, i think by taking part in that whole process at least for me i become much more appreciative and respectful of of that animal where that food came from i don't want to i want to treat it with you know with as much respect and um, take care of it as much as i can and i don't want to waste any of it has anyone ever left one of your programs and committed or recommitted to vegetarianism not that i know of directly but people say <clears throat> And I'm, I'm in a similar boat in that uh, they say I'm basically going to be a vegetarian unless I can hunt and gather my, you know, my meat protein. And I really, you know, my, our family doesn't buy much meat at all. Uh, we're able to, able to get enough deer, elk and salmon and primarily to keep the freezers full and we've got other family members that 
hunt and fish. So on a lean year, we might be able to lean on somebody. And then on a good year, we can share it and, and uh, not have to purchase meat. I mean, the occasional package of bacon, maybe, but I've had vegetarians tell me that that's a really a spice rather than a meat. <laughs> I respect that a lot. Would you agree with the statement that people should be hunters or vegan, but not as much in between those two? Well, it's interesting thinking about the two because as I understand it, vegan vegetarianism, you know, some of their, a couple of their main values, as I understand it, are one, uh, not to exploit animals and two, minimize suffering. And those are basically the same for hunting because it's illegal to sell wild game. You cannot exploit it. And most hunters want to minimize suffering of animals, you know, in the process of hunting one. And, and that's a whole other conversation. I mean, what is suffering and who can, who's aware of it? Um, and we could go down several rabbit holes about what what happens when a pack of wolves takes down a elk and it's a slow slow death and you know is that is there suffering is that right or wrong i don't you know it, it's neither it's just it's the way it's been happening on this planet before we came along and oh. i think we were part of that process and it's not until recently that we've extracted ourselves from that process and uh in doing so, we could be giving up something pretty critical in terms of our connection to the land. Uh, <clears throat> Aldo Leopold, who was a who was a uh, conservationist and early in his career was a forester. He was, I think, had a task to shoot wolves because they figured wolves were bad for. The ecosystem and he shot one and realized that he was making a mistake and as he watched this thing die and he he started started looking at things from a bigger broader perspective and he talked about intelligent tinkering being uh one of the first steps to to take care of and 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 that you know if something if a system is good all parts of the system must contribute to that goodness and in a way hunting is part has been part of the system for a long time and and by you don't you know and with an intelligent tinkering you don't just pull a part out and toss it because you don't understand it because it's part of the whole even if you don't understand how it fits in and i think hunting you know, can be like that and that we've pulled it out and we've almost thrown it away i mean hunting is on the kind of the brink of extinction in a way um a lot of people arguing against it very few people actually hunting but in doing so and, and pulling that piece out and throwing it away what are we missing what are we losing in part of the bigger equation that we may not understand i mean that that relationship to the land to the animals to the food that we've cultivated over hundreds of thousands of years all of a sudden you know in a in the blink of an eye in geologic time here has been kind of pulled, pulled out and tossed aside. 
So I think that's important to keep in mind, like how long, I don't know the history of veganism and vegetarianism and how long, how far back that goes. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a complicated question. And I think, I think there are merits for pursuing vegetarianism and veganism if the alternative is supporting the commercial meat industry. Um, but if you have the if you have the chance to hunt your own food, we've had several proclaimed vegans that have come to our courses because they want that connection. They want that kind of you know, opportunity to, to eat meat. They don't want to, um, they don't want to support the commercial meat industry and the, the suffering and the exploitation that happens in that. So <clears throat> I'm not sure if I'm answering your question directly, but um, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities when we get right down to it. And I suppose like a lot of things, it just depends on what the intention is behind it. I think that's a good way to thread the needle. I think people pretty strongly agree that factory farming is not really in the consumer's interest. It's great at producing calories, but I'm not sure that the nutritional quality is as good as something that is living in nature. Certainly their suffering is so much greater. And I think there's good reasons to care about that. I mean, there is middle ground too. We've had Beast and Cleaver, Kevin Smith on the podcast before and supporting animals that lived healthy, happy lives. And the line is always that they've had one bad day, the animal, the last day. You can also compare this to Temple Grandin, right? Trying to reform commercial meat and saying that the taste of meat is ruined by stress, especially on that last day. And that even for commercial meat producers, they are also concerned with quality and not wanting to ruin meat by, by stress and all the hormones that flood the body in moments of extreme crisis. While it's honorable to go out and harvest your own meat, every time I've hunted javelina and deer and quail, but uh, standing over an animal that's, that's dying that you have put in that position is, um, it's sad. I wish I had a nicer word for sad. It's just, there's something about it that it's old. It's been yeah. done forever and it is not a laughing matter and it's not something to be insincere about. I think as the process goes on and the harvesting has begun, it, it becomes less of a subject and more of an object at that point. Maybe you get used to that at some point, Bruce, and you've hacked that or maybe it deeply affects you. I'm not sure, but I'm not sure everyone's capable of that or is willing, but I think it's a good standard to strive for, if nothing else. You mean just the awareness of the the emotional side and the the sadness per se? I think so. I don't think you have to be maudlin about it or overdo it, but I think certainly when people are sitting down to eat a steak dinner or a hamburger, they're not feeling any somberness or probably even thinking about it, even if they ostensibly care about where their meat comes from. But yeah. Do you still feel those feelings? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, there's, as I get into the hunt and it gets close to, you know, taking a shot at something that's just the, the emotions and the sensations are really difficult to describe. Um, and then there's a whole flood of emotions that come afterwards after a kill 
you know, there's a sense of relief that you did it right and a sense of sadness and a sense of uh, gratitude that you're going to be, you know, you're going to have food for another day. You know, there's got to be, it probably taps into some survival cord deep inside of us that, you know, today we're not uh, limited to what we can go out and hunt and gather on the land. But it wasn't that long ago that if we weren't successful, you know, we went hungry. And and it's hard to deny the fact that we're all sitting here today because our ancestors were successful hunters and gatherers. If they weren't, you know, they didn't gather, or they didn't get enough food to survive and pass on their genes. Uh, and I'm also curious to, when you had the javelina hunt, when you uh, shot that javelina, and did you have a chance to eat it? And what was your experience with that? I found it actually fairly traumatic because it was on a family friend of ours they leased land in texas as so much hunting happens in texas through leases like that it actually may have been wild pigs and not specifically javelina i'm trying to go back in my memory it's been nearly 20 years at this point but they had actually been trapped so it was actually less of a hunt and much of the hunting there was deer stand oriented and not tracking and wildland kind of movement but i think it was more of a okay they are captured they destroy this land they're an invasive species we're going to turn them into you know pork chops and and bacon but um yeah i remember just sobbing and, and especially just the the execution element of it where they're no longer a free-ranging animal that is destroying the land but it, it's almost just a being that needs to be dispatched but um uh, it's sort yeah. of helpful to, to bring up that memory too, because it, it doesn't feel necessarily fair in that way either, but it maybe still had to be done. Well, this is, this is interesting. I think it's very important to make a distinction between that and hunting. Um, you know, for our hunting courses, we are running them outside the hunting season and we're not hunting. We're using farm-raised animals and, and trying to dispatch them in a... As, as humane a way as possible, uh, just so we have the opportunity to work with real animals. Um, and there's an, and I, we talk about this in depth, like this is not a hunt. This is not hunting. This is more like, more like farming and, and, uh, and the difference between that and a hunt is significant. It's night and day. I mean, the hunt the kill during a hunt is a very small part of it, but the hunt can be hours, days, weeks, or even years long. And there's this, there's part of the planning and prep that goes into it. There's the, the educational component of getting ready. And then there's you know, getting out there and, and studying the landscape and understanding the landscape, the animals, animals patterns, the watching the weather, you know, understanding ourselves and how we navigate in this environment and and getting away from the roads and the trails and and having the freedom to go anywhere i want to when i'm out there on a hunt uh and we talk about a hunt being 
you know every step is a an adventure every step is a decision and um you know after a few days of that my my intuition gets much more loud and clear along with my senses and um you know they just get tuned up i start to reconnect to the landscape and really um really tune in and to me that is that is the hunt that's the experience of the hunt and within those experiences i've had many many um close calls you know shots that i almost had but maybe i decided not to take or or uh, the animal got away before i was able to get a good shot and and it's all these experiences that add up to the hunt it's the the experience of the hunt itself and then you've got the kill the kill shot which is also part of that experience but a very small part of the overall experience in my mind so i do think it's important to make that distinction that um you know slaughtering an animal at a confined animal in my opinion is is not a hunt uh, a hunt is when you're out there in the wild and anything can happen from seeing nothing for several days to getting weathered out and uh, taking shelter somewhere to working hard and backbreaking leg aching type work hiking up and over ridges and mountains and chasing animals and looking for animals looking for sign tracking putting all your senses into it and sometimes at the end of the day coming home empty-handed and uh, it would be way easier just to go to the store but it's that that experience of the hunt that I think is is really critical. I think so too. And I've done that as well. I think that is interesting to focus not merely on the the killing moment, but on the broader context of that's actually the part that's being connected with nature. It's not just the life and death part, but you also are out there and you're way more observant than almost anyone else would be in the same environment. You are looking for signs of animal life. I'm sure you're being quiet. I'm sure you are not actually moving a lot at points too, listening, which I think if people are hiking, they may even have music playing. I hope not. I really hate that on the trails when people do that. <laughs> um, or just uh, chatting, you know, being social. I don't think there's a lot of that. You must have moments where the forest goes quiet and you'll sit there for several minutes trying to figure out, is there a predator nearby? Is there, what, what just happened exactly? Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to cover six, eight, 10 miles a day, but also there are periods where you're sitting for a half hour or creeping and, you know, maybe going 20, 30 yards and a half hour trying to get into position or just really moving slowly through the environment, the landscape, because you feel like something's there. And uh, it's going into nature. I mean, it's, and I I want to say a couple things here um, before I forget, but stepping back just for a second, when we were talking about the kill and, and how emotional that can be. And, uh, I wanted to say that 
you know, I, when I'm not out in the hunt and I'm thinking about killing something, I have really no interest in doing that. And I, if I have to do it, like slaughtering a farm animal, it's, you know, I try to make the, the most of it, make the best of it and, and respect that animal, but it's, it's not a fun experience and it's not really something I want to do if I don't have to do it. However, when I'm out in the hunt and engaged in the hunt, I have a totally different relationship with that cycle of life and death. And it just, it's, it, it seems to flow. It seems to be part of the process more in that way. It's not that I don't still take it seriously. Um, but there's just, there's a shift when I get into the hunt that this is kind of a, you know, this is a, a little bit of a survival approach here that I'm going out in the woods to, with the intention of killing an animal so I can bring it back and eat it and feed my family and my community. And, you know, we can survive another day. And if you're living in the Northern latitudes, like we are, that we don't get a lot of vegetables year round and, and fruits. And, um, so in a way, hunting animals, animals have the ability to convert cellulose into muscle, you know, grass, they eat grass and, and turn that into a, their muscle. And, and we don't have the ability to eat grass and grass is basically is capturing solar energy. And, and so we're just, it's, it's just parts of the, the whole system that are changing form and, and we're ultimately all powered by the sun and um it just happens to be that animals in this climate you know provide a really convenient and great way to um, preserve food in the live form until it's needed to be to be eaten and i think another aspect of this you mentioned hiking and backpacking which i've done a lot of growing up and skiing and and i enjoy those things and they're they're quite different i mean a lot of times backpacking you've got a destination in mind and you're going in there to set up camp and you got a, a mission and and you're i mean i'm out there observing taking in the the landscape but i'm moving through it very differently i'm just kind of trudging down a trail trying to get to one spot and that's very different in hunting where you might have a destination, but there's no trail per se, and and you're wandering around, and you you find one thing, and it makes you turn this way, and you find another thing, and it makes you turn that way, and pretty soon you're 180 degrees off of where you plan to go, and and uh, and I've heard hunting, you know, going into nature is like throwing a pebble in a calm pool, and you know your presence makes a splash, and those those ripples go out and, and concentric rings, you know, sort of alarming the, the the general area of your arrival. But if you if you stay quiet and still long enough, those rings settle down and and calm down. You know, and things kind of go back to to normal a little bit. And uh it's it's said that you know, it's at that point, the animals, the wildlife have either 
forgotten you or accepted you. And that's when the real hunting begins. And that's always stuck with me. I, I, you can trudge out into the woods and you kind of make that big splash. But if you stay with it and and tune in long enough, you start to become more part of the ecosystem. Uh, as you were mentioning earlier, I mean, you really, really paying attention, slowing down, very quiet. And, and that's just not something that we do very often in this day and age. And it's not something that's promoted so much, you know, and our fast paced lives. It's, um, so it's, you know, in some ways, I think it's quite therapeutic to, to do that, to, to get into the hunt. And it's something I look forward to every year as sort of a helps me reset and remember where my roots are and how I'm connected to the land. And ultimately, it gets back to the topic of conservation, because I feel like when I go through all this, I feel like I am the land and I'm so connected to it. I I, I can see myself in it. And at that point, I want to be the best steward that I possibly can for that land and that ecosystem because I see it as all the same. You know, I'm I'm taking care of the land, I'm taking care of myself. And and it's I think, you know, we've for whatever reason we've created that disconnect in our lives fairly recently. And maybe it goes back to the, you know, the the start of the farming and agricultural systems that cropped up five or 10,000 years ago. And that could be a whole nother conversation. Um, but we've, we've become disconnected to a lot of these things. And so once, once that happens, we don't care so much. We don't have, I don't, I don't have as much. Uh, I don't think about it as much or care about it as much. The things that I really don't know about or don't have any connection to and, and the vice versa. And I'm sure you can, you know, imagine that for yourself too. The things that we are aware of, the things that are in our own backyard, we care more about. The things that are happening halfway around the world that we don't know anything about, you know, we're we're not as attuned to. And so in a lot of ways, getting back down to the topic of this conversation, hunting helps me connect to the land and the ecosystem in such a deep way that I can't help but be a, a steward and a conservationist. I think if you're able to get to the point where you can say a statement like, I am the land, at least when I'm doing this activity, that's a pretty profound level of connection here. You also tempered it with saying, I feel connected to the land, but at its strongest point, you are the land and you are enacting its will in some ways too. The conservation element is important but it has a much more practical bent. We started the conversation with why hunt? Why is it important to be connected? And that's because a lot of shows that we do are not merely about the practical effects, but about our relationship with the planet, with industry, with food, with one another. And those conversations, they all tie into climate. It doesn't just have to be you know, right on the nose climate. But the right on the nose point here is really important that we've essentially eliminated or severely curtailed many predators that would otherwise uh, balance the amount of prey animals out there. The classic story for this is Yellowstone killing all the wolves and the ecosystem so radically changing because the 
elk just took over and ate all of the grass and we're not doing well. And there's just too many of them and humans, they've been here for at least 10,000 years. Actually, I keep seeing the estimates for when humans came to the Western hemisphere going farther back in time, mm-hmm. but they've been involved in the management of mega fauna for a very long time. So just taking them out of that would be bad. But also if you don't hunt and you also have killed off all of the natural predators like cougars and, and wolves, then what happens? These prey animals have evolved to be in balance with predators. So in some ways we have removed that responsibility from natural cycles and it is up to us to either reintroduce them or to take that responsibility upon ourselves and, and hunt as well, or maybe even just both. Yeah, this is another fascinating topic too, um, because there are people who believe we should not be hunting and we should bring back natural predators and let that system fall into equilibrium that way. Um, but that's easier said than done. You know, there. I years ago I studied what they did in California, which was to outlaw uh, hound hunting for cougars, which is what they ultimately did in Washington too. And what happened in California was that, you know, they petitioned this, they, you know, they outlawed cougar hunting essentially. And it wasn't that long after that they found themselves, the, you know, the fish and wildlife service down there was having to, coal to, to kill basically as many if not more problem cougars as the hunters were hunting previously and they just turned it into a you know it, it became a liability because they were coming in and eating people's pets and chasing runners and occasionally attacking somebody on a trail and uh so it's it's complicated. Um, and I think just like Aldo Leopold realized that killing all the wolves wasn't the answer because a diverse ecosystem is a healthy ecosystem. I think the bigger picture here, the bigger issue here is habitat loss. Uh, and, you know, a lot of our most productive bottom lands that have been winter range for a lot of wildlife have been developed and into cities and pavement or farms and ranching and it just doesn't we don't have the holding capacity that we did for wild animals not that long ago and so it's you know it's it's so there's so many pieces to the puzzle here you can't just say well let's just bring back predators and everything will be in equilibrium again uh, because we, we've we been managing, we've been manipulating the environment for so long that it's, you know, we, we could pull the plug and just move off the planet and it would eventually reset, but it's not going to happen overnight. And it's certainly not going to happen overnight when we're still, you know, here fiddling with things and, and changing things. So it's, it's really complicated. And I think if, if we said, if we came to the point and saying, listen, we're going to bring back uh, wild predators and let them control the healthy populations of, of prey animals, 
and we're not going to hunt anymore, I think we would be doing ourselves a disservice by pulling ourselves out of the, that equation. Uh, yeah, I, I think I'll take a break there and let you respond. <laughs> well, I like that the answer is not nearly as simple as just letting nature take over. There's also so much conflict with ranchers in the West and predators. There's actually a group in Montana that, I don't know if you know the Property and Environment Research Center. I think so. I think so? Yeah, they're they're pretty involved with payments to ranchers to be more tolerant of livestock attrition due to predation. And it turns out that having this sort of like market-based payment system makes them much more tolerant rather than finger-wagging at ranchers saying, how dare you? We need wolves. And to ranchers, I'm sure they care about the abstract value of nature's health, but also it's hard to care about that when it's a hard business and you're losing animals due to predators. So I think there's a more nuanced conversation around these issues that need to take place. But a lot of this just ends up in culture war territory of people who think hunters are just macho assholes, essentially. And I'm sure they look back at the people charting them as, you know, liberal city slicker, coastal elites who don't know anything about anything. And then the, once the conversation's there, it's basically impossible to have a productive chat, even though we we probably all care about this and probably could find productive middle ground solutions to much of this. Yeah, I hear you. I've seen some back and forths on online, you know, between pro and anti hunters and it. It's amazing how quickly it degrades into a pissing match and nobody gains anything from it. Uh, but maybe that middle ground is, you know, what, what is our, what is our connection to the land and and how do we maintain that? And maybe something that everybody can talk about, whether it involves hunting or not. And I was just looking through my, I make a notebook that we give folks when they attend the course and we've got a couple of pages of quotes in here. And one of them I was thinking about as we were talking about that last topic, a quote by Jose Ortega Gasset. Man cannot re-enter nature except by temporarily rehabilitating that part of himself which is still an animal. And this, in turn, can be achieved only by placing himself in relation to another animal. But there is no animal, pure animal, other than the wild one. And the relationship with him is the hunt. So the point there being that, you know, we could we could have farmed animals and pets and still have relationship with animals, but there's just no substitute for the relationship that comes from encountering a wild animal and sort of the dance of the hunt hmm. because it stirs things, I think, in us humans in that process that um, that have been lost in the domestication of wildlife and the domestication of our own lives. I think it's uncomfortable for people to imagine themselves as animal. So many of the things that we share in common with life in general, but maybe mammals specifically are corporeal. You know, they're about bodies. Bodies are gross and difficult. And there's a desire, I think, to, transcend them 
in an extreme way. You could see it even to the point of the singularity where we upload our consciousnesses and leave the body behind. In a previous show, we had a guest called a techno-gnosticism where everything material <laughs> is bad and everything spiritual is good. And we had to leave the demiurge and his corrupt world behind and become pure spirit and pure intellect. And um, there's also a number of authors that I've read who are saying that you're, when you're giving up the animal, you're forgetting that you are not pure intellect, you are body, you are an embodied soul. And lest you forget this, this could lead to some sort of crisis. And I've seen them point to various different kinds of crises this might lead us to when we forget the body. You're laughing. It sounds like you connect with this statement at least a little bit. Yeah, we the matrix reference has come up multiple <laughs> times. Oh, really? You know, and, and talking about all this, but you know, I think this delves into some questions that we're never going to know the answer to, but it's important to keep asking those questions. And, and I think it's important to not get too comfortable and really stay focused on as much as to, as much as we can, you know, what, you know, what this means for us, what this means to us. And, um, yeah, that that sounds like a whole other conversation too. Of <laughs> I'm not even sure what to make of all of it. it there's, our, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you could sit here and say, yeah, we're we are embodied, and it's the way it's been for maybe two million years, the best to the best of our knowledge from studying archaeology. But we really don't know for sure. It's our best guess of what the reality is and so it's i often just go back to saying you know there's there are things here i don't know and i'm not gonna know and it seems like nature has been at it a lot longer than we have so what can we learn from nature and what would nature do and i think nature you know would include hunting and it would include that relationship to other physical things um, so that we don't forget, you know, what, what that's all about. One more spiritual idea that might be closer at hand. You read a quote too, from, I think it was from braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer about the idea of, of gift and, and what it means in relationship to hunting. Am I, am I remembering that right? Yeah, I've got the book here. Oh, yeah, I might even reread them dramatically and just and uh, put them at the front of the show. I'll just read a, a portion here of um, braiding sweetgrass from by Robin Wall Kimmer on page thirty. She says Lewis Hyde has made extensive studies of gift economies. He finds that quote objects will remain plentiful because they are treated as gifts. End quote. A gift relationship with nature is a formal give and take that acknowledges our participation in and dependence upon natural increase. We tend to respond to nature as part of ourselves, not a stranger or alien available for exploitation. Gift exchange is the commerce of choice, where it is commerce that harmonizes with or participates in the process of nature's increase. In the old times, when people's lives were so directly tied to the land, it was easy to know the world as gift. 
when fall came, the skies would darken with flocks of geese honking, here we are. It reminds the people of the creation story, when the geese came to save Skywoman. The people are hungry, winter is coming, and the geese fill the marshes with food. It is a gift, and the people receive it with thanksgiving, love, and respect. But when the food does not come from a flock in the sky, when you don't feel the warm feathers cool in your hand, know that a life has been given for yours. When there is no gratitude in return, that food may not satisfy. It may leave the spirit hungry while the belly is full. Something is broken when the food comes on the styrofoam tray wrapped in slippery plastic, a carcass of a being whose only chance at life was a cramped cage. That is not a gift of life. It is a theft. God, she's such a good writer. That's what a beautiful set of paragraphs. What that one line, that phrase, uh, was it feel the warm feathers cool in your hand? Was that what it was? But when the food does not come from a flock in the sky, when you don't feel the warm feathers cool in your hand and know that a life has been given for yours, when there is no gratitude in return, that food may not satisfy. It may leave the spirit hungry while the belly is full. Wow. That's very profound. I think that's more profound than this entire episode. We could probably just cut that and then just paste that quote up there. Yeah. That's, she that's why on. you do it, yeah? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, she, says, she goes on to say, how in our modern world can we find our way to understand the earth with his gift again, to make our relations with the world sacred again? I know we cannot all become hunter-gatherers. The living world could not bear our weight. But even in a market economy, can we behave as if the world, the living world were a gift? And I think that gets back to partly what we're trying to do here and that, yes, we are helping some people prepare, you know, get over the hurdles and barriers to entry to hunting which can be complicated so that they can get out there and experience the hunt on their own terms. And some people that join us may not have an, an intention to go out and hunt, but they want to understand what the hunt is all about. And in a lot of ways, being here for four plus days doing all this is about as close as you can get to a hunt without actually hunting. And I think it gives people that context and understanding of why hunting is so important, why it's been such an important part of our history and what it can do to teach us about how we are part of the system and, and connected in much deeper ways. I think at least from the, the weekend workshop that I did, I think that's certainly true. I would have liked to have gone to the, uh, typically people go to a first workshop before the one that I went to. But I've heard universally good things. One of my old friends from Chicago, Annika Wu, is a, a she became a butcher. I'll check with Annika before talking about this, but I want to celebrate her. But I knew her from filmmaking in Chicago and then decided that she wanted to be a, a butcher and then has now moved on to her company is called Bon Jerk. And they make amazing Chinese uh, flavors of high quality, regeneratively produced beef jerky. I imagine there's probably other animal meats in there too. I think there's a pork, there's a pork one too. Um, amazing, amazing quality. But I think she wanted to work her way up 
further back in the process of understanding what it's like because butchers don't actually harvest animals oftentimes the animal itself that's already been uh dispatched and cleaned i wanted to you know take that responsibility and understand how exactly it works to be involved end to end and she found you and then i saw her posting about it so i gotta talk to bruce but I think that might be an illustrative example of the kind of student that finds their way to you, or maybe that's not paradigmatic. I don't know. What do you think? I think so. I appreciate Annika's approach. Uh, you know, she's very active in women and ranching and obviously butchering and making jerky uh, and wanted to understand the hunting side of it too. And in some ways, hunting and ranching and farming are fairly different paths, but they're also, there's a lot of overlap there too. And, um, and yeah, she, she's definitely a, a good example of the kind of participants we have join us here. It's, we spend a lot of time philosophizing and, you know, talking over meals around the campfire about all of this and what it means to be a hunter, uh, what it means to be a meat eater, what it means to be a human. And, and I think that's, you know, there's, there's a, there's a richness there um, that adds to the, the hard skills and uh, the, the tools that people walk away from uh, the course with. And so it's, yeah, and I just, I really appreciate her approach and she's actually been um, involved in helping us form an alumni community for human nature hunting because that I think is also a very important aspect of all this it's is having a, a sense of community along with this connection to nature and sitting around the campfire the proverbial campfire and and having some dialogue about what what all this means rather than trying to force our agenda or force our beliefs i think i mean a good open respectful dialogue is where a lot of things start and can benefit from the quality of the students in mine was also similarly thoughtful and made me think and i also like the pairing of intellectual activity with working with your hands too i think for a lot of people that's not that common uh, they they clack on plastic keyboards all day long and watch TV. There's something nice about connecting in this way. And like, I think craft in general is important. Learning skills like this is rewarding for its own sake. And I wish there was more uh, opportunity or desire for that. And if this appeals to you, you're listening to the show. So you, you probably have some affinity for what I'm saying here. Bruce, right now there's applications open for several uh, camps or workshops of yours in the spring. Is that right? Spring and summer? Yeah, we start out with uh, shellfish foraging in March, yeah. which is in Hood Canal and a great way to kind of get your feet wet per se. Where you, It's a very tied-to-table experience. We go out and forage shell. Uh, uh, clams and shuck oysters and show you how to do all that. And then we prepare a big meal right there with what you forage and on up to uh, a turkey hunting course in the spring. And then that launches us into our Awaken the Hunter courses, which go mostly in the spring season and early summer. 
uh, the multiple day courses in Kettle Falls, which is Northeast Washington, North of Spokane. Links to those things are in the show notes. Yeah, humannaturehunting.com. I'd say if, you know, if you're at all interested in this realm, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, you can always schedule a short conversation. And if you have some burning questions, uh, this is really about being in service to humanity, what we're trying to do here. I've my background is in civil structural engineering, and uh, but I shifted gears to doing this because I felt like it was a better use of my time and life energy to try to help people reconnect in this way, or at least pause and ask a few of these questions. Um, so if you have any interest or curiosity, yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. I, I think some people who join us say they've they learned of us two or three years ago and they've been following us and finally got to a point where they're ready to make that next step and attend a course. So it might not be something that happens overnight for everybody, um, but at least to to start thinking about it, you know, I think is is a good first step. Thanks so much for being here, Bruce. I don't think we've done a show quite like this before. I appreciate all of your time and teaching me so much. And thank you for being here. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks, Ross. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.